yeah, I feel like I'm still a bit too young to do this podcast. Although we had to push back this podcast so much, I actually had my birthday and got a little older, a little closer to the age range for old Takuno Radio. Welcome back to Old Taku No Radio. We're talking about the eccentric family. 1,200 years since Emperor Kamu settled on a location for the palace, humans live in the city, Tanuki crawl the earth, Tengu fly through the air. Since the Heian era relocation, humans, Tanuki, and Tengu have maintained a delicate balance. That's what keeps the great wheel of the city turning around and around. More fun than anything is watching that wheel spin. That is from the introduction of Eccentric Family 2, but it just perfectly kind of encapsulates this city of mythical creatures and humans in this wonderfully drawn out drama of a show that's just about family, but kind of the weirdest family members you'll ever have. With me, as always, is my cohort in crime, Mr. Jared Nelson. Hello. And we have a special guest today, Miss Helen from the Organization of Antisocial Geniuses. And the Manga in Your Ears podcast. I do so much podcasting these days. That's also why we had you on, because that's an amazing podcast, and everyone should go listen to it. Jared, would you uh, want to run us through a little bit of what the uh, eccentric family is? Yes. So season one is really about loss, and the family, who are sort of our, our, our main uh, characters we follow, and particularly the viewpoint character, Yasabudo, is coping with the loss of uh, the patriarch of their family, Yasaburo and his uh, three other brothers' uh, father. And uh, most of this season, pretty much all this season, is dealing with uh, them coming to grips with uh, losing him and, and finding finding out how to move on and what life after him is like. And there's a little bit of mystery as well surrounding their father's final moments, since we know from the get-go that his father was eaten by humans at a New Year's celebration, but there's still a little bit of a mystery for how did he end up in that position? Also, why is Yasaburo still friends with one of the ladies who ate this guy? Because she's pretty. Yeah, I don't feel like that's a mystery that's ever quite <laughs> resolved in this show. <laughs> I I think it's a master-student relation thing because she is the like the foremost pupil of Akadema Sensei, who uh, Tanukis serve. They serve all Tengu, but Yasaburo has actually a sort of a mentor relationship with him. He's always by his side and fetching what he needs, helping him clean the apartment because he's just become this slothful old man. But if he's if he's respecting Akadama Sensei as a master, then he might be respecting Benton, who's his star pupil, just out of like that. But there is more to it. I mean, there, there obviously feels like there's more to it. I, I feel like Benton for Yasaburo is, is this... Um unattainable love that he has um she i think to him embodies uh something of freedom and being a free spirit and, and getting to do whatever you want to do um even though she's capricious and kind of an asshole and does whatever she wants whether it hurts or helps him uh or anyone he cares about so it's it's a very complex relationship it's it, it there's not really it's it's not really a straight I don't think, anyway. It's not really a straight. He likes her for one particular reason. I mean, she is gorgeous, but I don't think that that's the sum total of it. 
I like that. I, I I really like the way the show is written, and this goes a lot to how the I forget who the credit goes to, but the the people who actually animated the the characters' facial reactions and the the storyboarding of them, because through an interview and in one of the uh, the limited edition release that was put out for season one, there's a uh, interview with two of them, and they were pretty much going in depth to say, you know, this was adapted from a novel, and to actually make all the character, uh, all the narration come to life, they put all the narration into the atmosphere and the characters and the reactions because there couldn't be this constant over narration. So literally tone is shown like in everything that comes, that just seeps through the show. And just to jump in really quickly about that novel, um, it's by a, a gentleman by the name of Tomihiko Morini and uh, Morini sensei is also the guy who wrote the tatami galaxy. Um, interestingly enough. Um, so, it's it's still, you know, it's it's a different kind of crazy from Tatami Galaxy, certainly, but it's it's got its wild, topsy turvy, reality bending moments for sure. Yeah, I think I've read some of the same interviews that Ink has, and I remember them talking about the sheer number of monologues they had to cut out. That there was a stylistic choice to keep them basically to the very beginning and ending of each episode of Yasaburo. And I also remember the writers going, "There's so much to keep in here. There's so many characters. We really need to show everyone." I think something else about the first season, when you when you have kind of both seasons behind you, is is that Yasaburo in season one focuses very much on being the trickster and sort of reveling in his youth a bit, and um, you know, really relishes all of the the zany antics that he's up to. And I think that he has a character kind of tonal shift a bit uh, in it in season two. Certainly by the end of season two. That's that's kind of the point of season one because season one starts with you know like Helen said the the absence of the father being felt throughout the family, and what you have is four kids trying to find out who they are and how their father's blood is split between them because they make a a, a big point of saying you know their father uh, by having children split his idiot blood for uh, four different ways, Isaburo got the fool. Uh, uh, the youngest got the uh, the scientist. The oldest got the uh, the political nature, and uh, my 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 man uh, Yajiro. Uh, I don't know what he got. Maybe the philo- the philosopher. So it's it's them finding themselves and how they're going to affect the world they've inherited, and it's very much a growing up and coming to terms, especially when you have uh, the antagonist that they end up facing, which is uh, the Tanuki what killed their father. Uh, and the theme of family dynamics really continues across both seasons. Since we had Yasaburo's family, we've got his cousin's family, and then we have a family of sorts around Akadama sensei. Since we have both Ben Ten, who's somewhat treated a little as his daughter, somewhat treated a little bit as his lover. And then his actual quote unquote son returns in the second season. So I think it's fair to say that this entire series is about the relationships between people, especially the familial ones, above all else. Definitely. Glad you brought up the the daughter-lover ugliness there. What, if anything, did you guys feel that brought to the rounding out of both of those characters? It reminded me of all those literary novels you have to read in school where it's like the 40-year-old English professor who's having the midlife crisis with his like hot young grad student. It's like, why is this relationship even happening? I don't understand at all. That was kind of my feeling. Like, 
I wasn't sure why Ben 10 was even still associating with Akadama that much, since it's clear that she's become a greater Tengu than he currently is. The impression I always got was that she took his powers, although I don't know if that was ever substantiated in the text. So I really wasn't quite sure why she continued to be loyal to him, although maybe that was just like the only loyalty she has left. <laughs> or it could be Stockholm Syndrome, since he did kidnap her. <laughs> this is true. There's a lot going on unspoken in the background of the eccentric family. That's all I'm saying. The relationship between those two is probably the strangest and most complex, for sure. Because uh, I could never entirely put my finger on exactly what they thought of each other as. There's clearly a bond. There's clearly uh, a level of affection. But one of the things, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna save. A lot of my Benton talk for later, but one of the things with Benton that you get a hint at, but not really a lot of detail on, is what her overall goals were. You know, you get a sense in season one that it's for her, it's about power and and being you know, revered and worshipped, like her namesake. She's named after the I think the fortune of love in Japanese mythology. So there's um, there's that, but um, I, it was never entirely clear to me, other than her just like liking to lord over people and be revered, what the uh, wh what her whole her, her whole goal was, and what her goal was vis-a-vis -vis her relationship with Akadama Sensei, because uh, at times at times it's like she wants nothing to do with him, but at other times she. She does make an effort to to be uh, to to care for him, and he in return cares for her. Um, it's a it's a strange relationship. In some ways, her worldview is a little bit like a Tanuki's. She just goes with the flow a lot. Since like you're like you said, um, she definitely wants power. She wants reverence. When in the second season, the Tanuki start to pull away from her, she's very hurt and kind of lashes out like an angry god. But she takes the world in such a stride, it does seem a little bit more like a Tanuki's mindset than a Tengu's or the relatively few human characters we've actually met in the series. I think it's actually in the beginning, very, very beginning few episodes in uh, the second season where she actually directly correlates her sort of her power lust and that copacetic worldview of just saying, hey, isn't this getting interesting now? And the Tanuki's are always saying, you know, what's fun is good. And... To, to Benton in the first in the first sorry, in the first series or the first season, that power trip is just kind of how she's been taught to enjoy the world because she's been brought up as a Tengu, which is you know a very powerful mythological creature, and you know they have the utmost respect from a lot of these other creatures and a lot of special abilities and powers, so they are sort of above everything and can just watch everything happen and that's good. But it's not as fun unless you're kind of messing in it. And she enjoys very much messing around psychologically with other characters and pl playing with them uh, just to sort of observe their reactions. So, yeah, I, I, I like both of your insights into that. I almost feel like sometimes she, because she's a human that has the powers of a Tengu and there's a bit of identity confusion there, and because of her relationship with Yasuburo and that never being fully clearly I mean she she sees him as a plaything in in one respect as a friend in another and maybe something else maybe something else uh beyond that um but 
she sometimes acts kind of like a tanuki to me, um, and I didn't I didn't think about that till I rewatched it for for the the show. Just just how capricious she is. I mean, we we don't get a lot of of interaction with other Tengu. I think we get three other Tengu. You know, Akadama Sensei, Akadama Sensei's buddy with the camera, and and then Mr. Top Hat in in season two. Um, but all of them have this pretty principled, not quite reserved, but fairly serious kind of demeanor. And and she, except for the Tengu Yakuza, they they seem a little less reserved. <laughs> yeah, the, the Tengu Kai, Yakuza. The Kaiji Tengu. Yeah, who we see for like five minutes in the entire show. <laughs> yeah, like the 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 most goon of all goons who've ever gooned. But but you know, like just the way she acts is not very Tengu like. If you look at the way. If you look at the way other Yakuza Tengu, notwithstanding, how the other Tengu act and react around other people. So the uh, the main theme running in in season one is one of loss when it's uh, you know for for the father of the Shimogamo family. I, I I don't know about you guys, but I was a weeping mess by I think it's three quarters of the way through when Akadama Sensei is just sitting in the restaurant and. The, the ghost of the uh, Shiogami uh, patriarch just props up and starts laughing at a drink with them, and they say their final goodbyes, and he advances into the light of the afterlife. And there's a lot of a lot of death and a lot of sadness in the series, but there's no there's no real violence until the second season. Yeah, I think part of it's because the Tanuki have accepted to a degree which feels inscrutable to a human that they are prey animals they are going to die and then the real violence we see in the second season is between tengu it's not even between the tanuki like there are a lot of tanuki scrap um squabbles since um the shinogama patriarch's death also leaves the whole tanuki society in a bit of an uproar since he was um i guess you'd say the head of sorts since his position's name was the trick magister and so they're still trying to fill that position with a suitable replacement after that but none of that gets terribly bad, unless the cousins are involved. And they're more stupid than anything else, honestly. Mm. Kintaku and Gintaku. As political titles go, Trick Magister, that's pretty solid. That's pretty awesome. Like, I would want to be elected. I feel like Trick if they Magister. do anything bad, you can't, like, even blame. It's like, look who you wanted. Look who you elected. <laughs> yeah, society well, it's, of fools. <laughs> it, it's almost like the, the Trick Magister's job to just screw around. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of what's great about the first season is just watching everything be anything because the, 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 the Shimogami patriarch turns into a mountain, which is his most infamous trick, and his, uh, his second oldest son ends up turning into a, a train that terrorizes the city. <laughs> a drunk train that terrorizes the city, even. A drunk train that terrorizes the city. <laughs> I love how he only has two settings in that first season. He has Frog in a Well, where he has... Junk train rampaging through Kyoto. <laughs> oh, but there's so much more because there, there's Frog in a Well, but Frog in a Well is this lamenting son who can't remember his father's parting words to him, and then oh, he's got he's a deep and layered character. Don't get me wrong. I just I just love how his his two shapeshift abilities are either like I'm a frog in a well, or I'm like a drunken train frolicking around Kyoto, like. Going through like rush hour traffic and stuff. I I just yeah Yajiro was 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 a very interesting character to me too uh, throughout the whole thing. 
That's right. We only see him in like his human shapeshifted care uh, form, like via flashback. I think in the first season. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the first season in particular could be summed up as Yasaburo's slice of life adventures as a Tanuki masquerading as a human in Kyoto, which is such a mouthful. But I feel like it sums it up just this almost carefree attitude he has towards the life. Like in some ways, I think it's pretty obvious that this is his way of trying to cope with grief by just flat out ignoring it but it's a really interesting way to introduce the characters in the series and it's a really fun way as well since kyoto pops up in a lot of anime just since it's a big city in japan that's the reason why big cities in the u.s always pop up in u.s shows Mm -hmm. but it certainly felt different than a lot of other places with the way the characters just sort of casually inhabit these really famous temples and they go around these shopping districts that aren't as well known to american viewers like us and so it's a really fun in that way, even though there's this lingering darkness in the background of my father was eaten, and I don't know why. Yeah, that's true. It feels to me like this show and, and the people that put it together really lovingly portray Kyoto. And Kyoto is almost kind of a character in and of itself in some ways because of how it sets mood and scene so well. And it just it's it's so authentic, I guess, throughout the uh, just throughout both seasons really i've recognized via just random like image searches when i when i was looking for whatever if i'd come across a certain street scene i'd go hey you know what that kind of looks like kyoto and i have no reason to know what kyoto looks like other than having absorbed as many japanese cartoons as i have but mainly this one because my God, does it get something spot on with, I don't know, color and tone, and just gorgeousness. It's just, it's not like photorealism. It's just the right level of fuzzy cartoonishness. But for whatever reason, like if, if I'm scrolling through pictures of foreign places and I see like red street lamps along a dark wooden alley, I was like, oh, hey, <laughs> I recognize that. I think the first episode of season one, is one of my favorite first episodes of a show probably ever. I just felt like it was so well put together. The pacing was great. Uh, it, it sort of told a complete narrative in and of itself in that first, in that first episode, and it really gave you a sense of the um, fantastical realism that the show inhabits uh, and, and, and gives you a sense of the, the world that Yasaburo lives in and, you get so much in that first episode that really they don't have to really revisit it again uh, very much at all uh, for uh, the first season. And they don't even really dive back into it that much in the second season. They kind of like touch on it. Like they assume that you've, you've already seen season one, Never mind the fact that it was, you know, about a year apart, I guess for both seasons. Or I think since, Season two only came out last year, and I think season one came out years ago. Oh, that might be right. Four years. Oh, wow. 2013, 2017. I think Jared's having a crisis. Yeah, that that blows my mind. Like, I, I did, when I saw the second season for the first time, I did not watch the first season in prep for the second season. I just watched the second season, and it was like, you know, coming home to old friends, it was... Uh... You know what the problem was? This aired at the same time, or directly following... I know the second second season did. Uh, uh, 
Shogun Roku. Rakugo Shinju. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's screwing up your head. Yeah, yeah, that whole kind of that whole kind of era of time will be known as Rakugo Shinju time. <laughs> um, you know, just relettering my calendars right now. Um, but but back to that back to that first season. Ink, I think you you've already mentioned who your favorite character was. Uh, Helen, do, do you have a favorite character out of that first season, or was there an arc uh, that you really appreciated in season one of Eccentric Family? I just really like the Shinagomo um, family as a whole. All four of the kids and the mom, they're all just nicely well thought out characters. Like the oldest brother feels a little flat at times, but that's because he's such a straight line compared to the rest of his brothers that that makes him feel flatter by comparison in an odd way. And the youngest brother never gets as much attention because he's like 10 or so. He's going to work and getting locked in closets by his cousins. There's not much more going on in his 10 year old life. (laughs) But I really liked seeing them all together. Um, They had a really fun family dynamic together. What I like about the oldest is that the goofiest thing about him is his mode of transportation. Just that. Yeah, I could never figure out what was going on there. Like, <laughs> he's riding around in this, like, miniature carriage, which is being pulled by, like, some sort of mechanical person. I'm like, okay, are we supposed to think this is weird? Because, like, nobody on the street seems to think this weird. They're all human. Like, I cannot figure out what's going on with the show's magical realism sometimes. I'm like, am I supposed to go for flow on this or not? My personal headcanon for that is that those weird marionette things with their flailing around heads and limbs just to look like normal people that drive those cart and there's those carts around um, to, to just normal mortal people. But, but yeah, those are, those are awesome. <laughs> like, yeah. That would make the most sense. But I was like, what is going on here in the background? It, it brought a smile to my face every time those things came on screen. Cause they just look so goofy. I always thought they were a little creepy, honestly, cause I couldn't figure out how they were working. Yeah. I don't know guys. I like to know how my modes of transportation work before I ride on them. So I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> Now, if its head starts spinning around while you're riding it and it starts talking to you just out of the blue. Yeah, then you you're, then you're then in, you epi- in an episode of Yami Shibai and you need to get out right now. <laughs> How about you, Jared? Favorite character arc? Oh, man. Uh, I don't have a I, – I do have a favorite character arc. I mean, I, I really, I really, really, really like uh, Yasuburo. Um, but favorite characters from season one, I mean, it's got to be, you know – Ginkakudayo, Ginkakudayo. It's gotta be. It's gotta be those two. Like, they're so great. Every show, every scene they show up in, they crush. It's they're so stupid. They're the stupidest, like idiotic, like thug villain, like rival type characters you could imagine. But their execution and the and the the stupid like bowl cut of their hair. And the way that they have like no real identity of their own, that they just feed off of whoever their their kind of boss is, you know, at the time, and they adopt all the aesthetics and everything. Like that's that's just perfect. And um, and and yet, despite all their ineptitude, they still manage to 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 be like a plausible threat to uh, to the Shimagamo family <laughs> somehow. Well, that just makes sense in a story about fools, that the biggest fools would be some of the biggest threats. I didn't like them that much, though, that you're talking to somebody who didn't like Looney Tunes when she was, like, four, so I'm just not much one for obviously stupidly inept uh, characters or persons in real life. <laughs> See, I, I, I'd say 
you're missing out on something because like I, I not everyone likes Shakespeare, but like the fool is a classic archetype in his stories. Like you always have the clown, and this this one is just a clown split in two, much the way the same the 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 Shimogamo's family uh, patriarch was split in four. Um, but I like to, to to Jared's point, like they have no real personality of their own. And that's even divided further because there's the one twin that apes the other twin endlessly. And so it's like he has even less of a personality, distinct personality than his twin brother, who already has no personality. Yeah, like Ginkaku is like the biggest poser of them all. <laughs> is it always him? I could never tell if it was supposed to always be Ginkaku mimicking Kintaku or if they just switched that every now and then. I thought that that the gold one was the one that was always like the head that's the trendsetter amongst the two but but i i could be mistaken about that for sure one always has the lead so you just kind of convince yourself he was always the same but i like thinking that they're just constantly trading off as the lead yeah the my my second favorite and and, and he at least deserves an honorable mention not not as much in season one but oh god season two the guy who uh is is hote in the uh the the kino club the friday fellows who who goes on and has a crisis of more of, of like a morality crisis and leaves the Friday Club? That professor guy, um, he is pretty hilarious in his own right. Oh, he's the one who had to go like hide out in the woods at one point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys ever catch his assistant is Ben Ten's younger brother? Oh, I did not. Someone pointed it out online that it's the same last name. So once again, it's like eccentric family. Like, what's going on in the background? Like, that's crazy. So he's like a Suzuki then. Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, okay. So Benton, to because we haven't mentioned, it was yet. born with a real human name. Yeah. She she was not born Benton. <laughs> she was born like Suzuki Satomi, which is almost like Jane Smith in like Japanese, like. I had a, a coworker who was named Suzuki once, and she would joke that in a Japanese restaurant, if you called out Suzuki-san, like half the restaurant would turn and look at you because you they would think that you were after them or needed them. Um, and I think that the the sort of banality of of her name, of her true name, is a very interesting facet to Benton and how she sort of strives to be something extraordinary, even though she's just a human. And now I have to ask your your love of this professor character. Is it predicated a lot on some of his actions in the last episodes of the show, um, his crowning moments, or did you like him before that? His his act. I, I I've appreciated his whole kind of journey, but his his activism uh, towards the end of season one and his like absolute amazing just ridiculousness in season two taking that activism to like a whole new level and even even becoming a vigilante <laughs> to protect Tanuki <laughs> is like the best thing. So yeah, in season two, he's he might be my favorite character out of season two just because of like his incredibly lame antics. <laughs> I, I got to be the oddball and say I fell in love with him during his uh, Zen food rant. I think it was... Um... <sighs> It was like dead center in the series, it was like either episode six or seven, where that you had that wonderful uh, autumnal rooftop scene with the the light filtering through the the oak leaves and everything like that. It was uh, it was him just 
praising things for being tasty and then, you know, you should be appreciate them for being tasty. That's why he was talking to a tanuki about eating tanuki yeah. as being something that shouldn't be offensive because they should be proud of how good they taste. <laughs> and uh, that that whole monologue, which went on for like 10 minutes, or at least felt like it did, that made me fall in love with this character right there. And, you know, the fact that he sort of comes around morally and takes into others, uh, takes into account others' uh, viewpoints, made me love him all the more. But yeah, he's he's definitely one of my favorite characters as well. Yeah, in the past, he he actually saved Tosen Yasuburo's mother, um, and and nursed her back to health, I think. And uh, as soon as you saw that flashback, you knew, oh, okay. Well, at some point, he's gonna he's gonna encounter her again, and he's gonna have some sort of change of heart or something. But even though it was kind of a predictable turn, it, it, the way they did it and, and the way that he kind of became this like fiery convert to, to protecting you know, the lives of Tanuki was just amazing. But it, it is all predicated on what you pointed out, Inc., about his, his sort of concept of love um, and his, his you know, enjoying delicious food as a form of love and, and – appreciating the taste of things as a form of love and and that was his logic for why he he enjoyed eating tanuki because he he appreciated tanuki so much and it was just a form of love to him eat pray love yeah i guess so i mean honestly what i got out of that monologue is oh i wonder if this is what hannibal is like but (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was a pretty it was a pretty twisted screwed up kind of thought process for sure but this is a guy who in season two dresses up like a low rent Bucky Barnes or Robin or something to try to save the Tanuki. And it's so clearly, and he's like basically in his underwear with a mask on. He's, he's, he's like three pieces of clothing away from being a Gona guy character at that point. Which is something I love about the series for, for all the fantastic things all about the series and the, the characters. And you have this one frumpy professor who just sort of is human because Everything else is so outlandish, and then you get human in like toned down business suit or you know English professor on a lax day. <laughs> but then his exposure to that to that magical realism kind of crazy world of Tanuki and Tengu, even though he doesn't fully appreciate and understand what he's gotten himself into, like it kind of affects. Understands at all? <laughs> no, it, it it kind of infects him in a way. So like by the end of season two, he's as goofy and stupid as any Tanuki is. Being fun is infectious. Him and him and Benton actually kind of, sort of have that in common. Even though season two, she takes a very different direction. Yeah, one thing I wish the series had actually gone into more is like, what are the differences between human Tengu and Tanuki? Since on the one hand, it should be a really obvious difference, like these are three different kinds of animals. But on the other hand, we do have so many characters who seem to vacillate back and forth between like any two groups in there mm. and i kind of wish that we'd gotten a little more of a clearer understanding of okay like here's how things are supposed to go but that I, wouldn't fully fit in with the magical realism of the series i'm just like i just kind of want to know what's going on in the background guys that also made you, maybe the point of it all is like blurring the lines like there are no mm-hmm. real divisions especially when you have like a human benton who can just all, all of a sudden fly <laughs> yeah that's why that's why i'm like did she steal akadama's powers or what since we've seen tengus that look human tanukis can look human so it's like th- this has got to all be on purpose but i'm not quite sure what you're getting at <laughs> there's still a third uh, third novel to be translated so 
I don't. It's not even written yet, so. No, no. Oh, there is going to be a third. Oh man. Yeah, the plan is for it to be a third, and PA Works has basically said, "Yeah, our intention is to adapt this whenever it comes out. Like this is our plan." Oh, interesting. So you can watch a certain segment of Anna's Twitter go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they've said that publicly in the past, like at Otakon conventions. It's like, yeah, we liked for season one so much that we're just like we're doing the next book, and we're gonna do the third book whenever it comes out. <laughs> Oh, by the way, guys, I'm doing another, another, uh, ah, crap, I forgot the name for a three-part movie. It's called a trilogy. Thank you. Uh, by the <laughs> way, welcome. I'm doing another trilogy right in the middle of the trilogy. <laughs> well, well, actually, Inc., it's called a trilogy. <laughs> the asshole said, condescendingly. <laughs> I, I did want to ask, Callum, because you said you really liked the portrayal of the, the mother, uh, the Shimogamo uh, matriarch. I found her kind of flat in the first season. She was just this uh, sort of thing to be protected when the lightning hit. And she had this sort of badass pirate vibe uh, because she was sort of kept <laughs> no, no, in the Taka, background. No, uh, Takarazuka. That's totally what she was going for. Oh, uh, okay. Explain to the class what that is, yes, Helen. please. <laughs> that, that, that is a theater revenue in Japan where you have half the cast are women playing women and the other half of the cast are women playing men. <laughs> And it is very gay at times. That is the thing. I, I, I that see. This is where I will depart with from you, Inc. Like I loved her in season one, because you're introduced to her as you know she's the, swindling people out of money at pool. the pool hall OG. <laughs> she's like the the pool hall prince where she goes around dressed like this 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 prince out of a fairy tale. And, and, yeah, beats beats the hell out of people at pool. And for some reason, Yasuburo has decided the best way to visit his mother when she's doing this is to just dress up as a proper young lady with, like, a sun hat and a parasol. Yeah. I'm, I'm going contrib- to contribute that to, hey, let's get people to watch this series. <laughs> it worked. Mm. They do use him running around as a schoolgirl in episode one quite a bit to, to I guess, titillate sort of. It's just sort of weird. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, they do. <laughs> like, it, it's not even titillating. It's just bizarre. It's like, okay. But but I, I love Tosin in, in season one because you get to see more of her being like this. Like, she's as weird as any of them, you know? Uh, in season two, hmm. that's when I felt like she was more flat to me. But see, yeah, I, I kind, kind of liked her because then you got a sense of what other Tanuki are like who aren't the the Shinogomo um, siblings were just running around doing weird things. I felt like you kind of got a better sense for what the quote-unquote average Tanuki might be like at that point. Grounding. She provided grounding. Hmm. I just had issue with, like, she was such a background character, or at least when I think back on it, because I didn't rewatch season one before this podcast. I watched the tail end of it. (laughs) Um, And, uh, I remember, like, the pool hall scene, I remember, and then I remember it cutting almost immediately to that, you know, the, the storm and her being afraid of lightning. And she ha- she has a lot of defining moments, but it, it seemed to me that season two really sort of brought out her past and her, her the nature the nature of her being non-confrontational but nudging. Mm-hmm. Um and I just sort of love those kinds of mothers, probably because I had one. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was very personal for me. But uh, I, I liked how they sort of brought out her her nurturing nature a bit more 
in in this season. So she wasn't as frantic as her kids, but she was. Uh, she she sort of grew into the mother. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely true. Um, she she's very much focused around being that matriarchal, nurturing, supportive figure in in the second season, where I feel like in the first season she's in her own way trying to come to terms with with the loss of her husband, you know, uh, mm. at a very different kind of pain there. Uh, about about season one, before we, like, start drifting into season two full on, um, is there anything else about season one that you found particularly remarkable before we move to season two? We touched on it a bit earlier, but I liked how the art could be pretty but mundane a lot of the time but it just knew how to shift its color palette and it's angling around enough to have like really dramatic scenes. Like when Ben mm-hmm. 10 is throwing a whale out of the water or the scenes on the roof um, in the autumn, beautifully lit garden or the scenes with um, like their summer, like boats in the sky festival. We're having a ship battle now. Um, the, the, the series had a really good sense for when things should look ordinary and when things should look extraordinary which I feel like isn't hyped on as much as it is because I feel like the anime community likes to point out, look at how even this average background looks extraordinary. I feel like they don't quite praise the people who can do both simultaneously as much mm. as they should. Hmm. I'm with Ellen on that. It's, uh, for all the praise that, they, that the writing and the storyboarding should get, really very few people... Or at least it, it doesn't stand to memory that a lot of people have really talked about the show that how how clever the art was in its 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 implementation. Yeah, I've definitely had a screenshot from season two as a background on my computer ever since the show aired last spring. So <laughs> that was such a great coincidence. And then I actually pulled up an episode review, and that actually was uh, a different, a slightly different timestamp of it. But there was a they they used that for the episode guide. <laughs> so season two. Has a, it starts off with a very very different frame uh, from from nobody's dead one. this time so yeah yeah nobody no one's dead um, yet yet and it yet. starts off with a flashback of uh, when uh, Tosin and um, Soichiro uh, meet as kids uh, and and sort of flash forwards within that flashback to them you know, seeing each other on their wedding day and. And it, it, it definitely sets it up for, okay, this is about, you know, we've dealt with loss in the first season. This season is going to be about love and, and marriage and relationships of people, you know, around we, around themes of love and, and things like that. Um, how well do you feel like it delivered on that first, that, that establishing sort of scene right there at the first part of season two? Or, or do you feel like that was maybe a... a something that they wanted to sort of counterpoint in some way. I didn't rewatch the show before we did this podcast. So I can't speak about that in particular, but I did like seeing a little more background on the characters and how they came to be. And since we end up with like three of the four brothers sort of hooking up by the end of the season, it does make sense. Sort of. I I have some reservations, a lot of reservations about Yajiro's potential future bride, but age gaps. Yeah, I I really love I, I I I'm a sucker for a boy meets girl story. So 
seeing the the Shimogamo main couple meet as kids on while you know being stupid kids or being Tanuki being stupid kids. Uh, so Ichiro being this you know hunter of mythical flying snake creature um, and challenging the local girl to you know climb up the steps. It's just very very true to life kid stuff and just this very simple fairy tale narration on top of that of uh like you pointed out you know uh first kids then uh dating and marriage and you know ultimately just falling back to the children who are the focus of the show now um it's just all very well laid out i was just suckered me right in with the fairy tale bit of it yeah i may not have rewatched anything before i started before we did this podcast, but I did read up on a whole lot of interviews because that's what I do. I research stuff. And one thing I noticed is that in any staff interview, they talk about the dynamics of the family a lot. Like this was clearly the main point of interest for the staff. And I think it's so funny because we've spent so much time talking about Ben 10 and everyone else does as well. But she's barely ever mentioned the staff interviews. They're always like the family is what I wanted to portray. You know, the family was so interesting. That was actually what I hated most about this season, like if, because they had at the end of, uh, or at the very beginning, they had Benton going off to Europe because she'd just become bored with the, with the town. And I'm like, that's kind of perfect for her. Let her go. That's fantastic. But the first three episodes, you're just waiting for her to come back or the show. You are. And some other people are. The show was waiting for her to come back because it was present in Akadama sensei. Like, clutching a globe around his chest and you know benton where's my benton oh my god benton and he is the average viewer of the show like Mm. everyone was waiting for that that sort of chaotic influence to come back and be there i was perfectly fine with getting to know the backstory of the shimogamo family and meeting more characters in um uh was it the ebisuga Ibisugawa. Thank you. Uh, family. Um, and just having, you know, more people to get to know and the, 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 the Nidame. And it's like, oh, all this new stuff is happening. And oh, and Tenmaya. Tenmaya. My Japanese is awesome. But yeah, like, Tenmaya is actually my favorite character of the new season just because of how much of an anti fool he is. But the, the, the camera, the, the whole storylines was just so thirsty for it. And then she finally shows up and it's just like, eh. you know, I actually missed her being her, but I didn't need her. Yeah, I thought that Benton was kind of boring once she got back. Because a lot of the second season is that Benton's position as this capricious minor god in some ways of Kyoto isn't upset because suddenly there are actually other Tengu options if the Tanuki need like a Tengu moderator for something. And she just gets very prissy about it, very human in some ways for jealousy and her greed. But I just found Benton kind of boring in that way. So I think you guys are projecting a little bit about wanting Benton to be back. So I'm like, that's not how I felt at all. I don't think that's how the show even was. I, I could have really cared less about Benton, honestly. They tried to do something kind of interesting, I guess, uh, in attacking her kind of sense of, of wanting to be worshipped and needed and, and all that stuff. But I, I would have been fine if we did not have to deal with Benton at all, and the conflict with the Nidaime could have been around 
um, Akadama Sensei and his relationship as father and son, which would have been a weird kind of coda to season one. But uh, yeah, I feel like I feel like Benton came back the second season, didn't know what to really do with her, and she has one of the weakest arcs in the whole second season, uh, to my mind. Um, but I really do like uh, a lot of the new cast that we get uh, in in season two. Uh, the Nidai Mei was interesting. I think he had some some layers to him that were that were interesting to explore. He yeah, very 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 different character from a lot of the characters um, that we that we get. Um, he's he's eccentric and weird in his own kind of way. Um, but the way he that ironing yeah the ironing and like the fact that he's dressed in this like white you know coat and tails and a top hat and living in a mansion on top of a office building uh, i mean there's he's definitely got some weirdness to him but the way he carries himself and his bearing is very he's very bored with the whole situation <laughs> um so he's he's very different i think tonally from a lot of the characters we got um tenmaya was was interesting as this sort of you know trickster magician who is a pretty dangerous rival to Yasaburo because it's kind of like, okay, here's a guy who can outwit even Yasaburo. And will literally throw you into hell. So. Yeah. <laughs> and it's super dangerous. Um, I, I, I liked uh, Gyokuran as well. I thought she was uh, a, a neat, in, in, a neat addition uh, because here's someone from a, from a, uh, a Tanuki family that they seem pretty normal. <laughs> <laughs> like she plays shogi and she likes the the oldest brother and she's kind of just got this calming sort of influence on like everybody um and and that was that was neat um so i felt like season 2 had so much uh character development they could have explored so much perspective they could have explored from other characters that you know the time the time they spent with benton was kind of like ugh why Please stop. Yeah, I do think that Benton's conflict makes a lot of sense since even at the end of the first season, the new trick magister hasn't been decided yet. And we know that the oldest Shinogobo brother really wants to take that position, you know, kind of following in the footsteps of his father. So looking at it in that way, mirroring, um, mirroring like Benton and Nidame makes sense. And then there's also the thematic contrast since mm -hmm. Benten kind of wants to retain what she is, but the Nidame doesn't seem to want to. And he's another case of a character where it's hard to tell what he is, since he says he's not a Tengu, but he's still obviously got Tengu powers, like he's flying around, and he but he doesn't claim to be anything else, like human. So I think that there's definitely some interesting similarities and conflict and oppositions between those two conflicts, and it makes a lot of sense. But I think you guys already know my biggest question is, why does, does the second season exist? Like, in the sense of a greater context of, this will eventually be a trilogy, it makes sense, but the season standing on its own... And each installment in a trilogy does need to stand on its own to some extent. Not all of them do, and this is not one that does. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's. I, I, it doesn't. It doesn't have as complete and as satisfying an end as of an ending like the the main story arcs. I don't think end as as satisfyingly as the first seasons did. I do like what they did with Yasaburo in in this uh, in this arc. They brought him down a couple pegs, honestly. They, yeah, they definitely did. And and he comes he comes out of this arc kind of ready to grow up, you know. Whereas in the first season, it was all about him kind of being you know 
a, a youthful rebel and, and, and doing what he wants to do. And, and in this season, he, he sort of finds the limitations of that and uh, starts to, to, I think, think about other people and put other people first in a, in, in a deeper way than he did in the first season. So his arc was good. Um, everything else, I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, Helen didn't didn't like really you know check all the boxes for me in terms of feeling satisfying by the end of it. See, I'll I'll, I'll be the oddball out because this was actually one of my one of my top three of the, the anime of the year. The first season dealt a lot with the kids just being kids and sort of being forced to understand this antagonistic uh, situation into which they've been thrust. The second is them actually coming up and becoming their father in their individual ways as best they can to sort of overcome their individual trials. So this this season then is about them growing up and, like Jared said, and sort of assuming, uh, actively trying to become the trick magister in some sort of competent fashion instead of just title alone. Um, Trying to understand the forces of... Uh, friends and family and how they interact, uh, as with Yasogoro. I can't remember too much about the younger brother's little little tale, like uh, if he even had one. He definitely then, had a tale, but not like a story tale. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he uh, but, was he was kind of completely left on the sidelines for the most part. He he once again got locked into a room of some kind, uh, and he once again uh, did some cool. Uh, you know, electric brandy oh, experiments, right. and that's basically it. So something's coming in the third chapter with him, but uh, and then Yajiro is is you know off traveling the world to discover himself, but he's actually you know grown and you know accepted his Tanuki nature and uh, what he has done in the past, and now he's growing with that, and he's learning to enjoy life again. So. It was it's, it's a it's a it's a season of growing and acceptance. Um, it, it's a more mature Tanuki family, but one that still uh, is having fun together. Hmm. Yeah, for the Shinogomos anyway, since the Ebusugawas, and I think we learned at the end of the first season that it was um, um, the father's own brother Son who basically brought him to the to the Friday Club to be eaten. So. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, now we got now we got side. Okay. <laughs> and so we see that Son is just falling in a way. Like he they used to be brothers and he's basically killed his own brother and he's become a part of the Friday Club himself and keeps seeking more and more power. And then things get even weirder and spoilier there. So Yeah. I wasn't entirely sure what that was supposed to be thematically, if that was supposed to be a contrast to something else or what. I, I might have just been looking too deeply into it. It seemed to me like he was so consumed with revenge that you know by the end of the first season we figure out he is the mastermind, like you said, behind Soichiro's death, and you know, wants basically and has always wanted to to be Soichiro. He 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 wanted to marry Tosin. He was in love with her. He 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 wanted to be the the trick magister. Um, so, so he he had this envy of Soichiro as someone who who had the life he wanted, and then once he's foiled in that first season, he spends all of 
the the second season, his story arc anyway, is just all this downward spiral about someone who's so consumed by revenge that they that they forget the bonds of family. They he even forgets the bonds of being a Tanuki by joining the the Kindle Club. So it's it's kind of it's it's a really tragic thread, you know, in a in a in a show that you know is is pretty silly even in some of its darkest moments. But you know, it felt kind of dissonant with the rest of the the threads in the in the second season to me. Uh, but that might have actually been part of it, since I remember that um, Yajiro, um, the second brother, mm-hmm. was actually supposed to be the one engaged to Kaisei, um, the Sugawa's daughter. Mm-hmm. But something's happened, so she's engaged to Yasuburo instead. Yasuburo is playing at Sundari, I think. Kaisei's like, yeah, I like you, but th- there are some problems going on here. <laughs> um, so maybe that's part of it as well, just trying to show how these two families come out differently. Because I think we even find out in the second season that Ebisugawa's even have four children as well, and but they are just overall a much less functional family. Yeah. And we 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 don't really ever hear anything about an analog to Tosin in the Ebisugawa side of things either. Like there's not a there's not a mother figure that we ever hear about. It's um, true. And and I, I wonder if that omission is is part of part of the message about how they're just they really don't have a tight or strong family structure at all i mean to be frank this show could use a couple more female characters since we've got maybe five in the entire show which are important we've got kaisei we've got tosan we've got benton and then we have um the 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 new girl yokoran yokoran in um season two and then that's basically it. I mean, the show doesn't have a huge cast to start with, but I would have liked a couple more female characters in some capacity, please. We also I, I have... would have liked the grandmother to have uh, some larger role because I love the hell out of that that little white fluff ball. You know, I think she's actually present in the first book. I think that was in one of the staff interviews I read that they were able to keep in basically all the characters, but they had to cut her out. So. Hmm. That was also kind of weird. It's like, is this literally a grandmother or is this some sort of snooky god here? Like how should I be reading this again? Like, I, I swear my English classes have ruined me. They're like <laughs> symbolism and everything. And then you give me a show like this where it's like, no, there could be symbolism in a lot of this stuff. Yeah. My eyes don't work anymore, but I see everything. <laughs> <laughs> she was awesome. And the animation around her was fantastic too. She was a great Yoda character. You know, she was, she was the Yoda. And even better than Yoda. Cause she's like a big white puff ball. <laughs> she is a cuter Yoda for sure. That there's the uh, the implement the heavier implementation of CGI in this this season because you had a lot more with the fireworks and the the floating uh, luxury liners mm. for the uh, for the festival, but you also had that lovely wafting fur in that in that white fluff ball scene that just made me break down and go oh. <laughs> yeah, if I remember right, like the animation for half of the episodes in the first season were outsourced, but I think PA Works tried really hard to do all of the animation, or at least all of the key animation, I forget which, in-house for season two. Like, they were challenging themselves with this show to do things the studio hadn't done before. And there there are a lot of interesting examples of of, of that throughout. I think the, the, the portrayal of um, the episode Arima Hell, like, so where... Yasaburo's thrown into the petting of hell and it's a portal to hell 
that I think was a pretty interesting episode visually and in terms of some of the uh, the the techniques used to 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 make the make the painting kind of you know when when he's like going into hell it, it does this kind of weird thing and it, that that was really cool looking I don't know how much of that was CG though yeah plot wise I thought that was the most interesting episode it's like oh yeah hey hell is real here and it's real bad and there are ramen stands in hell the daily lives of Oni boys <laughs> <laughs> there's a new anime right there guys. Right there. Somebody write Japan. Let them know. We're going to cash in on this monster boy phrase. Days. <laughs> but I, I know you said uh, Benton doesn't have much of a... The, the series didn't really know what to do with her in this this season. But yeah. they use her periodically really well just to make characters you know, come into contrast and sort of amp up the anxiety. Because in, in, that, in that Hell episode, she's, she's the one who crosses the barrier and rescues Yusaburo uh, very you know, conveniently to get him out of there within an episode's time. Um, but, you know, she has her fun. She's taking out all her angst in hell because she can beat up on anyone she wants and, you know, just go escape. And the other, the other one really lovely transition I loved with her was um, after that rooftop ironing scene, where she just sort of inhabits the chase of uh, the Ndame, and he dumps her onto a nicely laid out sheet on the floor, <laughs> and she gets up and uh, you know says, "No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not angry. Not over something this petty." And she just starts ripping the the, the clean linens from her, his cabinet and steps on them, turns sharply, and then just goes out. And it's all wordless. It's just fury and emotion but suppressed and I think they did a fantastic job animating that scene and I don't think you really could have any, had anyone else introduce that level of uh, angst really because it's, it's about her falling about her realizing how, how not a Tengu she is because she's still far outclassed by the Nidane and you know if, if we're paralleling siblings or not siblings uh Cousins? Father, son, mother, daughter, uh, relations, or, you know, mentor and... Mentee. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think that's how they're using her. It's because she's falling while everyone else is rising up. Is because she really doesn't have that solid family at all. Because the Ebisagawas, like you pointed out, they have a much worse family structure than the uh, Shimogamos, but they still have one. But Benton was adopted, and she's just sort of an outcast everywhere. So it's just it's another nice contrast that the series is playing with. I felt like one of the most egregious missteps season two makes is the way they resolve her, air quotes, resolve her story arc. Because they don't, <laughs> really. I was going to say, it's not really resolved. That's yeah, yeah. part of the reason why I feel like season two can't really stand on its own. I feel like we really need, like, the third book, the third iteration now just to clear up some things. Like, mm. I, I'm not, like, a giant fan of her character, but I really didn't like the way they left her. I, I didn't think that that was very fair to the character to just kind of be like, okay, she's just going to cry in a bed, which is like the most unbenton thing you could possibly imagine Benton doing. 
uh, and then well, a- asking to be pitied. You know, well, yeah, but I mean, it was it was just a weak for me. It felt like a very weak way to finish that arc. Like there should have been a beat or two after that. I I felt like to to get a little bit more out of her than just her crying into a pillow, just seemed like a disservice to to the character to me. But yeah, I mean, I yeah, and and we're already kind of. <laughs> You know, to, to telegraph Twitter questions, we're all kind of ready, kind of answering one that that Al had actually asked about. You know, why do we think? I'm kind of paraphrasing, but why why do we feel like people dislike the second season so strongly after loving the first? And I think a big part of it is that there's a whole there's a whole lot of of incomplete. There's it's just it feels very incomplete, which you know I, I didn't know that there was going to be a third book until like the podcast. Um, so I, I have been thinking, okay, well, that's the ending. That's really weird. Um, but even still, I mean, even as a, as a second, as a, as a, as a second book in a, in a trilogy, you would want to see some sort of structuring around where this character's headed into the third season. That's a little bit more strongly defined. And I think that we kind of just, abruptly leave characters before we get a real sense of completeness about their story arc. Well, apparently the third story is going to be about the Great Tengu War, so I have no doubt that Benton's going to play like a major role in all of this. I felt like this story was probably breaking her down to build her back up in the third, since that's a fairly classic technique with trilogies. And plenty of trilogies don't do this well. Plenty of trilogies have really shitty middle volumes, sadly. I just always have higher hopes that they're going to do better than I think they're going to. I have this image of Yasaburo with, like, two nine millimeters, like, walking towards the camera with, like, a bandolier of grenades and, like, a headband (laughs) and an explosion going on behind him. And that's, like, the movie poster for Eccentric Family 3 after that. The image I have in my head, head is totally different, so, like... Well, I, I hope the image in my head is not what we actually get, because that I will not watch that. That does not seem fun to me at all. <laughs> yeah, please, please don't drag this wonderfully fun and I mean, I say fun and light show, despite <laughs> all its all its. Uh, despite the premise themes. of the show being so, my dad was eaten. <laughs> Do not Zack Snyderfy eccentric family Japan. We beg you. Yes. Any other uh, thoughts on season two? Or the uh, seasons as a whole. I think season two did have some good moments. Um, the 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 falling into the shogi board I thought was cool. Um, the 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 Tanuki shogi tournament in general I thought was super fun. Um, and I wish we had seen a couple more things like that because uh, that was that was new and different. Um, I could have done without another. Um, you know, air pirate, sky pirate battle uh, with fireworks uh, again, because it's just kind of predictable the way that goes, even though this one ended a bit differently than the first one. It was a layering of clashes, which, yeah. like, I, I, share, I, I shared your uh, uh, apprehension for the, the, the parallel between the occurrences, but uh, I did like the fact that it was it took place between the two families where one member of the other family was aboard the other ship this time. And then the layering of the third, the, the Tengu wars on top of that. Uh, I thought that was kind of a nice gelling of the hands. 
<laughs> nice bit of layering of conflict. You missed a great hand motion here, guys. You'll 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 never mm-hmm. you'll have to just imagine it. Helen, how about you? I wish I'd talked more about my girl Kaisei because Kaisei's great. Like she and Gokuran are about the only two characters who can bring Yasuburo down a peg. Like he'll try to be cool in front of them and they'll just be like, No, like here's why you're stupid which is great. And Kaisei seems to also know what's going on more than everyone else just because she has this habit of hiding in really random objects like post boxes and everything. And I always like the characters who seem to know what's going on. I always like them a lot. And since she's kind of come out to Yasuburo in the last episode of the season, I'm hoping that in this eventual third season, which I do hope happens, I hope that she'll be able to have a slightly larger role again. Kaisei's adorable, especially when she hides in like tea kettles and things. Yeah, actually, in the staff interviews, they were saying they weren't even sure if they should show her on screen at all in the first season. Like, they were debating if they should even do that at all. <laughs> I, I, I really do think that they've set her up, you know, now that we know that there's going to be a third season at some point. I really do feel like they've set her up to be much more central uh, to the story going forward. Um, I mean, Tosan's basically like, marry her already, bring her into the family. She's the only good apple from that loose power <laughs> bunch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, it, it speaks it speaks to her character how how fondly she is remembered despite having almost zero screen presence. I, I really dig the way she's written. And she does so many things like for Yasaburo that he doesn't even like realize. It's it's uh, she's a very easy character to root for, uh, and. And, and I am happy to root for her again if the opportunity presents itself. I'm sorry, I don't want her with him because she's far too good for him. She's <laughs> far too good. She's far too good for anybody on that show. <laughs> well, if she was with Yajiro, at least that age gap would be a little less than the character they seem to be setting him up with at the end. It's like... Yeah, we've got this cute new Tanuki girl, and I, and I kind of dig her. But they're like, she's like, I dig holes, it's what I do. And Yajiro's like, I sit in holes, it's what I do. And I'm like, oh no, don't go there. You're going there, god damn it. Yeah, see the... Ooh, I, I, yeah. I, laughed, I laughed at the parallelism of language, and it was a great joke, but man, the, the connotation there is just not friendly. Yeah, yeah. Also, to... I didn't mean holes in a bad way, not like in the crayon devil way or something. <laughs> I was thinking Freudian holes. <laughs> yeah, no, I was not doing this like that. I meant like literal fucking holes, not like <laughs> holes that you do fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know why the whole thing with some of the pairings and the age differences is kind of, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. And and it's not even like you can't even say well you know it's in Tanuki years so <laughs> screw that like we don't even know if Tanuki years are a thing here we, we don't know Tanuki years are a thing and like like you can it's how the characters are portrayed right like that's the the imagery there is is suggestive of of squicky things uh, I don't like it but um yeah I I I really don't want to countenance uh, a relationship for Yajiro in, in that direction. I would rather him end up with someone like as strange and kind of quixotic as he is, you know? He should end up with an actual frog. That would be perfect. <laughs> be pretty great. Um, anything else on season two? 
that's about it. Uh, let's see. So, ha- did we answer all of the Twitter questions already? All the ones I can see are about Ben 10 and about Vor or why Ben 10 is the best. So, I don't think we ever actually answered why Yasubro is into Ben 10, knowing the Vor. Um, because we're just like, we don't quite understand. <laughs> ben 10's relationships are mysterious. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I kind of, I kind of started to answer it. I think towards the beginning of the episode, where I said, you know, that I think to Tiasaburo, Benton represents this sort of unattainable ideal uh, and this kind of free, freewheeling, free spirit. You can see that in a lot of their interactions, especially in that first season where, you know, she's catching the whale and like, you know, pulling the whale up out of the water and flying off and, you know, just being able to just leave her world and her problems behind whenever she wants to. And, and, and I, I feel like that's part of it for him. I think that's a big part of it for him. I, I think it's, I don't think it's even so much the, the, the physicality of her, of her being, you know, a beautiful woman or anything like that. I, th- I think it's almost more like, you know, she's something he could never be. Um, but, but what she has in her, in her sort of power, I guess, is, is uh, something that he really, really longs for, especially in season one, which is freedom to do whatever the hell he wants to. Um, I think in season two, though, um, you see that dynamic shift a bit, and he, you even see him towards like the very end of season two, really recognize, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm not in love with her anymore. Like I'm, I'm done. Like I, I accept it. I'm, I'm moving on. I, I think that speaks more to what the question is actually asking. Is there more than this Benton Yasaburo thing that's just sort of pervasive throughout the, the series. And I think I said it pretty early on. It's, it's about the kids coming to terms with their own worlds and growing up in it. It's pretty much that simple, but it's that difficult because there are four very distinct personalities who attack the world differently and are attacked by the world very differently by very different people. So it's watching all of those interactions and how the family unit handles it cohesively and individually. Hmm. All right. So uh, any, any closing thoughts on eccentric family? If we've got nothing else to, to run through. If there's not actually season three, I'm going to feel very guilty about getting, getting everyone's hopes up. <laughs> <laughs> I hope there's a season three because man, it would, it would let that season two go down a little smoother. Um, and I mean, Jihiro just got a season three, so it's possible. Praise the Lord. Pass the card cards. <laughs> <laughs> I really expected this show to be, and and we even I think we even said it in some prior episodes um, throughout last year. Ink and I were fully expecting 2017 to be a battle of Rakugo Shinju versus. Eccentric Family Season 2, uh, you, you know, for who would be the supreme best anime of 2017. And and while I think I think Eccentric Family 2 remained uh, fairly high placed, highly placed in in, in your esteem, uh, it, it was it was one of my favorite shows from last year. But I mean, I was really kind of disappointed uh, and let down in some ways by. Uh, the weakness of the the character arcs, um, but all that having been said, it was so great just to to come back to this to this uh, magical Kyoto, and I think that the way that the the show does magical realism is 
really one of the best things about it, and I think that's probably – I think the way it handles its magical realism is, is probably one of the best uh, implementations of that trope in just about any anime that that I've seen because magical realism is a thing that shows up in like every show that's got a supernatural kind of bent to it that's not in a fantasy world. So you know, if you think if you think about it, that's a lot of shows, but not – there's very, very, very few of them pull it off as well as Eccentric Family 2 does. I uh, I definitely didn't think this is the stronger season. I, I it, outside with Helen and you, Jared, and saying, you know, it, it definitely needs that season three to bring out whatever it was doing. I think it did a lot dramatically, but season one is still infinitely watchable by itself, standalone. Season two feels... It, like it lands, but it lands lightly, which is my contention with uh, Showa Rakugo. Is, is, uh, that just had an ending that should have really stopped like 10 minutes early. <laughs> and then it would have been perfect. I, like I didn't need the, the rest because that was just overboard. But uh, this one landed. It had its own thing. It ended okay enough. Um, didn't like uh, Benton whining. Uh, and crying she could have just been crying and that would have been fine with an ending for me but at least it wasn't a a bad ending it was just a a a letdown but still it landed but yeah the the magical realism is just absolutely perfect and joy to witness it's it's all those little spaces within spaces they create for the show um just the the normalization of these eccentric characters and it's, it's just a one it's a joy to revisit I just realized both those shows had an episode where the main character literally goes to the afterlife to hell, basically. Hmm. 2017 was a year. Indeed it was. It was. <laughs> so um, if we're getting a third season, let's let's close on this. If we're getting a third season, what would you guys like to see out of it? And I'll throw that to Helen first. Uh, like I said, I want like this great Tengu War. I want whatever the heck that means. I want... Kaisei involved. I want the whole Shinogomo family involved. I want Ben 10 to actually decide how she wants to grow up. Uh, also, just more explanation on the magical background workings of Kyoto at this point. How about you, Ink? I just want to be constantly surprised. I think that's one of the things that the show does really well, and uh, I just want to keep being surprised. I think for me, I want... Uh, I, I, I would love to have more of this of these characters in this world, just for sure. Would love to see uh, Yajiro come back and, and do something after kind of wandering in the wilderness uh, for a while. I would like to see the um, the elder Abisagawa uh, uh, brother stick around and, and see kind of how he gels into the, uh, the, the, the fabric of Tengu society in Kyoto. Uh, Beyond that, uh, more Tengu stuff, okay. <laughs> but um, I, I, I think I'd really like to see something more centered around the relationship between the Abisagawa family and uh, the Shimogamo family, and and sort of settle that once and for all, you know, and kind of you know tie up some of these threads that I feel like weren't very well tied up in season two. So, Helen, where can we find you on the interwebs? 
entirely too many places. Uh, you can find me on Twitter making like 12:30 in the morning shit posts at Wandering Dreamer. Uh, you can find me writing reviews of both manga and light novels over at the organization Antisocial Geniuses. I'm also the co-host on one of the podcasts over there. The It's Not My Fault the OASG podcast is not popular podcast. Um, I am not responsible for that name. And you can also find me as one of the co-hosts over on the Manga in Your Ears podcast, which is about manga, just like it says. It's great. Occasionally we have little spoiler-built sections at the end where Corey, April, and I rant about the crazy 90s shoujo we've made ourselves read that week. So much good content there, too. I, I enjoy it all, even your 12.30 a.m. shit posts, which I usually read about 5.30 in the morning. Yeah, I, I wake up the next morning, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, I did that. <laughs> Is this before or after the alcohol consumption? Jared, where uh, where may we see you on the internet? Uh, I can be found on Twitter at Save versus Jared, and um, I, I occasionally make posts there. I don't know if I shit post per se, but um, I, I do usually rant about something on there. You can go find me there. Um, I do some occasional writing uh, over at Any Gamers. And um, I do some occasional writing over at my own gaming blog, which is Electrum Edition. Been working on some stuff for that. Still working on some stuff for that. Started a new job recently and, and transitioning into a, a routine for that still. And uh, eventually I'll get in my groove again and uh, not just pass out when I come home. You also need to update the Kane Twitter account more. Just saying. We need more photos of your cute dog. Yes. And Kane... Uh, who who was uh, checking on me a couple times throughout the recording of the show today? Um, he can be found at Kane Club, or I think it's at the Kane Club on Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a whole feed devoted to him and his his uh, insanely pampered and spoiled uh, doggo life. So there's that too. And you can find me uh, over at the Fandom Post, where I'm contributing multiple. Uh... Ten years later, articles this year. Um, I just put up on Valentine's Day a Two Love Two review. Lord knows why. On uh, the Taiku podcast, you can catch me as their official bad anime sports correspondent or bad sports anime correspondent. Uh, we just did Two Car last time. Uh, the we're we're going to be doing anime. the. Oh, it's, are you kidding? That's anime of the year. Or it was almost anime of the year. Uh huh. <laughs> two car uber all this um let's see uh, otaku usa magazine uh you can catch that uh i th think the next issue that i'm in is going to have uh for anime usa the all anime issue of otaku usa i've got a feature on chihayafuru 2 uh, and kakiguri and a review of garo vanishing line and in the next issue of Otaku Essay, you should be able to read uh, about uh, Miss Koizumi Loves Ramen Noodles and uh, Takunomi. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, for uh, for myself, for Ink, for our special guest, Helen, thank you again for coming on, Helen. Uh, everybody have a good one, and we will see you next month.
this is the secret bonus level of all talking to Radio Helen. You you also get to have dinner with me. It's 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 really great. I don't think I'm having dinner with you if I already ate. Maybe having dinner at me, or I'm having dinner at you. I don't know. a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and i read in a magazine it was it was a culinary magazine and they had like a, a feature on per, the perfect peanut butter and jelly sandwich and every chef had its different technique you know and um one of them said put peanut butter on both sides like so of both pieces of the bread and then put the jelly in the middle because that way the jelly doesn't seep into the bread and i was like that's a pretty interesting idea i'm gonna try it what it does was it makes the jelly go all over the fucking place. 